Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all. Lovely to be here. And we had a lovely journey up yesterday. We got here and it was still light. We were able to drive around Beely Moor and see the beautiful countryside. And we can go back to Bournemouth this afternoon and tell everyone how lovely Derbyshire is. And hopefully tell them how lovely the people are as well, that they didn't throw us out or heckle or anything during the sermon. So it's lovely to be with you all. I'd like you to have your Bibles open, please, at Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 22 on the subject of knowing who you are. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you inspired these words, not by mistake, not needlessly, but so that we could hear and understand what God is saying. And we pray that you would speak to our minds, our wills, our hearts, our emotions, uh, that we might respond completely to your word and be the kind of people you have created and saved us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, can I, do I have to stand here or can I walk along there? Do I need to stay here? All right. All right. Well, I said my eyes are watering. Sorry. Can't see my notes. Um, I thought try and stay here. All right. So sorry for you folks over there. You have to watch from a distance. I think it was the philosopher Schopenhauer who was in despair sitting on the bench in the park late one evening when the park was going to be locked up and everyone should have gone and the, the park manager was walking around and, and he saw this guy sitting on the park bench and he, it looked as if he was suicidal or something. So I said to him, excuse me, but who are you? And Schopenhauer lifted his eyes and looked the guy in the face and said, I wish to God I knew. That's the trouble with philosophy, isn't it? It gives us lots and lots of questions, but very few answers. It was the young uh, Victoria who was having lessons from her governess, and her governess showed her the uh, family tree of the kings and queens of England and showed her that her granddad, George III, had four sons. George IV, his brother, who had no legitimate children, his brother, who had no little legitimate children, Victoria's dad, who had died when Victoria was two, and showed Victoria that she was, if these guys, when they popped their clogs, she was next in line for to be ruler of the British Empire. And she said she had never realized how close to the throne she was until that moment. Or take the young Octavius, 19 years old, and he gets the news that his great uncle has been uh, stabbed to death, Julius Caesar. And now he has, he's the sole heir of Julius Caesar. He's got his wealth, <laughs> he's got his family name, and he's got the support of all the legionnaires as well. And within, well, I don't know how many years, he became Roman emperor, emperor. Uh, he didn't realize how close he was to the throne. Or take this little church in 
Ephesus. There they were meeting in a little home, huddled together. And there just outside the home was the magnificent temple of Diana, temple of Artemis. Artemis and Diana being Greek and uh, Latin names for the same goddess. And this was one of the seven wonders of the world. You could go to the British Museum and you can see one of the pillars from the, the temple in Ephesus. And it takes about three people to put their arms just around one of the pillars. And there were so many of these fantastic marble pillars. It was such a magnificent building that it made the uh, Parthenon in in Athens looked like a doll's house. And there was a statue of the goddess Diana in this temple. And, and the myth was that the statue had fallen from heaven and Diana lived in the temple in Ephesus. And there were all these people and all the influence of this temple. And here were the little group of Christians meeting together. And the Apostle Paul tells them who they are. They are the temple in which God lives by his spirit. Not, not, not the, the, like the wonder of the world. They're the wonder of heaven. They're the temple in which God lives by his spirit. And to the church here in Chesterfield, where we feel so overwhelmed by the media bombarding us with the fact that they say that Christianity is a relic of the past. It's homophobic. It's misogynistic. It's, it's harmful for our children. It's harmful for our health. And this is believed by politicians, believed by people in education. And the masses believe it all. And here's this little group of Christians here in Walton. And we pick up the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And we read verses 11 to 22, where Paul tells us who we really are. And our heart begins to throb as we begin to understand that, yes, we are the people of God. We are the temple in which God lives by his spirit. And when Paul uses the word temple, there are two Greek words for temple. One means the whole temple area, but the one he uses here, it means the holy of holies, where God is. And that's who we are. We are the temple in which God lives by his spirit. But before we understand who we are today, we need to understand verses 11 to uh, 12, who we were before we were converted. This is my first point. Remember your life before conversion. And we were doubly dead. Now, I take quite a few funerals. And sometimes I get to the crematorium and I, I'm there a bit early to see the people who they come up. And I remember on one occasion a, a couple walking down the driveway hand in hand and then they get there and they say, look at the list and uh, the person whose funeral they've come for is, isn't on the list. So they uh, start to worry and um, they've come not only at the wrong time, not only at the wrong day, but they've come the wrong week to the, to the funeral. Now, now, some people turn up for funerals at the um, wrong time. Other people, they've come to the crematorium, they've looked at the list, and no, no, the person whose funeral they've come for wasn't there. They've come at the right time to the wrong crematorium. <laughs> They're wrong as well. Now, there are some people who turn up at the wrong crematorium at the wrong day. Now, they're doubly wrong. And the Apostle Paul tells 
us, that before we, us Gentiles, before we were converted, we were doubly dead. In verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, he says that all of us were dead in trespasses and sins. In verse 3, he says all of us, that's Jew and Gentile, we were all spiritually dead. There we were lying down in our spiritual coffins, dead. But now in verses 11 to 22, he talks to us who are Gentiles. And he says we are doubly dead because not only are we spiritually dead, just the same way as everybody else is, but as Gentiles, we are also far away from God. Look at verse 13. Um, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. You see, we were far away. He tells us that uh, there in verse 11 that we were Gentiles by birth. We weren't the people of God by birth. Not only were we Gentiles by birth, but we were called uncircumcised. Now that was a nasty word. It meant scum. It was like calling someone dirty rat. It was a word that they would use of abuse. Are you uncircumcised? You dirty, filthy, rotten people. And that's what we, we were called, the uncircumcised. We were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised, and then he tells us five things about being far away from God. First of all, here in verse 12, you were separate from Christ. Secondly, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Thirdly, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. Fourthly, you were without hope. And fifthly, you were without God in the world. Spiritually dead and far away from God. Those of you who've been converted, do you remember your non-Christian days? Do you remember those days before you found peace with God, before the things of God burst into your heart and you knew the reality of them? As it were, you breathed the air of heaven. But before those days, do you remember what it was like? If I stop and think, I can remember those days. When I couldn't find God, I tried to find God everywhere. I wanted to find God, but I couldn't. I was going to five different churches, reading my Bible, talking to people. I couldn't find God. And, and I couldn't conquer my sins. My sins, you know, I would write lists of what I was going to do and not going to do and fail miserably. I, ju- I just was spiritually dead, cut off from God. And then the day came when by grace... God opened my eyes and I saw that I didn't have to do anything. That Jesus Christ had done it all for me. And I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he burst into my life. And I was born again. I started to live spiritually. But if I, I can forget those days before I was converted if I'm not careful. And Paul tells us here we mustn't. Look, look at how verse um, 12 begins. Remember. That at that time, remember, in, the Eng- in our English version, it's there in verse 11 and verse 12, telling us we've got to remember what it was like. Because if we forget, if we forget what it was like to be unconverted, then we lo- lose the sense of privilege of being children of God. If you were listening carefully to Dickie's prayer, he was talking how we, we are a royal priesthood. We are adopted as children of God. It's a great privilege. And if we forget that once we were doubly dead, 
then we will lose a sense of privilege. And when we lose a sense of privilege, there's no point being committed to something like that. But when we remember, oh, it changes everything. We've got to spend time remembering the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. And that hasn't happened by accident. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. God, the eternal God, sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to die for you. Sent his Holy Spirit into your life to make your life. And now you benefit from the death of the Son of God and the work of the Spirit of God. And are adopted into the family of God. Remember who you were. You were doubly dead. And then verses 13 to 18, realize what your saved life is like now. This is verses 13 to 18. Verse 13 begins, but now in Christ. And he tells us that we're doubly alive. (laughs) In verses 13 to 15, he tells us that the far and near have been brought together. That's why we sang that song at the beginning, far and near. The far and near are brought together. This is verses 13 to 15. And this is the horizontal level. What God has done, he's brought the far and near together. Verses 13 to 15. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. It's Christ who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of his hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Now the Jews, they were the near guys, they were the near folks because they, they had the sacrifices, they had the scriptures, they had the temple, and you remember that God made his presence known there in the most holy place. It was as if heaven touched earth at that place. And then the high priest once a year was allowed to go into the very presence of God. The Jews, they were the near guys, but the Gentiles were the far away folk, far away. Indeed, if you went into the temple in Jerusalem, you would find that there was the, a court for the Gentiles, and then there was the wall before the court of the women and the court of the men, and there was a sign put on the wall telling Gentiles, and it was in Latin and Greek to make sure that everybody could understand it, telling them that if they Gentiles went any closer, they went into the next court, they did so on pain of death. They were likely to be executed because there was this 
barrier, this hostility. And that barrier in the temple was only a symbol of the barrier in the heart, the hostility between Jew and Gentile. But Jesus has destroyed the barrier, making peace. So that now whether a person is a Jew or whether a person is a Gentile, now having trusted in Jesus Christ, having been made alive spiritually, they are new creations. They are followers of Jesus Christ. They're a new humanity. They are the people of God. They are in Christ. They are Christ's people, Christians. I saw this when I lived in Israel. When I lived in Israel, I lived in an Arab town, and I would go to the church there, and there would be Jews who would come to meet together with the Arabs and worship God together. And on other times, I would go to visit friends in Haifa, and that was a Jewish town, and I would go to the church there, and there were Jewish people there, and there were also Arabs and Gentiles meeting together to worship God. Now, out in the streets, they were trying to bomb each other and kill each other and hating each other. But here in the church, in Jesus Christ, they were united. They were all one. The barrier had been broken down. I saw this a bit later when the Falklands War was on. You remember when uh, Argentina had invaded the Falklands War, so we sent our forces over and there was the fight going on for the Falklands. And I was involved uh, helping take a tour over in Israel and I happened to be there while the Falklands War was on. And I was at uh, Mount Carmel and going up Mount Carmel, you would go in your coach so far up, and then the coach couldn't get up to the top. It was too steep. So you had to get into taxis to take you up to the top to see the statue of Elijah at the top. And so I got in a taxi, and I was all on my own in the taxi, when jumped in two people. One of them was a, a Roman Catholic uh, a priest, uh, a monk, actually, and another lady he was taking round. And he smiled at me and asked me where I came from. I said, England. And I said, where are you from? He said, Argentina. <laughs> and then he looked at me. He said, isn't it wonderful that we're followers of Jesus Christ? And it was. It made all the difference. You know, the nations might be at war. But we were at peace in Christ Jesus that's why the banner that they used to have in Keswick, I don't know whether it's still there, but it used to be there. All one in Christ Jesus. God's people are all one in Christ Jesus. This is why church unity is so important. And this is why we must fight tooth and nail for church unity. I was thinking this morning just of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses and how we need forgiveness and how we need forgiveness not only from God but from each other sometimes. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we've got to forgive those who trespass against us. We can't hold them at a distance and say, oh, 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 you called me a dirty rat, I'm never going to talk to you again. I know of missionaries who've been driven out of the mission field because their children had peanut butter on their sandwiches. You can't believe it, can you? But the other families have said, oh, we've told our children that's a sacrifice that they have to make being on the mission field and you can't let your children have it. And it just caused so many ridiculous tensions. Just proof there's a devil, isn't there? We have to fight for unity. Why? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. We were dead, but Jesus Christ has made us alive that we might be one in Christ Jesus.
not only are we on the uh, horizontal level brought together, but verses 16 to 18 tells us on the vertical level we're brought to God. We're not only privileged to be brought together, but wonderfully, even better, we're brought to God. Verses 16 to 18. And in one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Far and near, reconciled to God there in verse 6. We both have access to God as our Father. And did you notice the work of the Trinity involved in this? Look at verse 18. For through him, that's Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father, God the Father, by one Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved in bringing us communion with God. We are privileged to be at peace with God. And this is just fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. If you flick back to Isaiah 57, that's just one of them. Isaiah 57 and verses 18 and 19, God is speaking through Isaiah and says, I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. This is why we have meetings, because we meet together and we meet with God. This is why this is a Sunday morning meeting. We're here to meet with God. And, and, and we have this privilege, this advantage of this access unto God. So as we pray in the Spirit and praise in the Spirit and preach in the Spirit, we, we know God coming near to us. And people will come in and say, surely God is amongst you. And they will be cut to their hearts because God is here. There's so many things, you know, in the old days they used to try and create an atmosphere of solemnity, didn't they? In the way they built the building so big and the stained glass windows to try and create an atmosphere of um, solemnity. Uh, and these days with the use of uh, media and music and anthropology, they, they know how to whip up your emotions. And so you, you can ride on this cloud of uh, emotion. But what we need is the reality, the awe that God is with us, that our consciences, that our hearts, our lives have been impacted by the presence of God with us. Surely God is in this place. And our lives are cross-shaped. We're in unity with each other and unity with God. God forgives us and we forgive others. There's this tremendous unity, peace with God and peace with each other. So, having explained who we are, in verses 19 to 22, he says, recognize the consequences of all this. Consequently, verse 19. Consequently, first of all, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, 
you are fellow citizens. Now, if you came with me to Bournemouth, I don't know whether this works in Chesterfield, but we, we have various Turkish restaurants, uh, and you can see them. And as you walk past, you can hear Turkish music blaring out, and you can hear them speaking the Turkish language. And as you go inside, they have these little Turkish poofs that you all sit on, and you have these... Um, uh, I don't know what they're called, water things, and they smoke. I think it's water, it might not be, and I'm not sure what they're smoking, but it's all bubbling up, and they all seem to be very happy about it all. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think they eat turkey, but everything's Turkish, all right? Uh, it's a little bit of Turkishness in Bournemouth. Do you have a Turkish restaurant like that in Chesterfield? No, no. Well, what they've done, what they've done is they've brought the culture of Turkey there to that little bit of Bournemouth. They are Turkish citizens. This is their lifestyle. This is how they behave. Well, we are citizens, fellow citizens of heaven. And we are meant to bring a little bit of heaven into our gatherings. Here, this is to be a little foretaste of heaven. We love each other as we will in heaven. We obey God's will as we will in heaven. We pray your will be done on earth as in heaven. And we're fellow citizens, and so we live like children of God, children of heaven, creating the culture of heaven. And then verse 19, we're family as well. That's what it means when it says, also members of his household. We're part of his family. Now, this is much more personal than just being citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven means that Jesus is our king and we're fellow citizens together. But members of his household means that God is our father and we're brothers and sisters together. That is not simply a culture where we obey the lifestyle, but this is a relationship where we live in love and commitment to each other. They say blood is thicker than water, and we not only have the relationship as citizens, but we also have the relationship as family. It's a personal relationship, and it's a permanent relationship. It's not like, uh, you, you know, a, a club where you pay your subs and you join for a while, and then after a couple of years, you leave. It's family. We are, <laughs> you know, we're joined together. That's what this marriage, you know, whom God has joined together. Family is joined together, and therefore we're to love one another. And I remember one of my brothers telling me the thing he couldn't stand about Christianity is you have to love the people you can't stand. <laughs> it's hard work sometimes, isn't it? To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> but we're family. We're to love one another. And not only in word, but also in deed. This is why we show hospitality. This is why we put ourselves out for others. This is why we consider others more highly than ourselves. This is why we um, pick people up in the car to bring them to church or to take them to a hospital or to a doctor's appointment or help people with their shopping. This is why we will even help people with their money. Because we not only open our hearts, we open our home because we're family. But we're not only citizens... And we're not only family, but here in verses 20 to 22, we're told we are the temple. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Brick by brick by brick. As more and more people are converted, as we're making, maturing, and mobilizing the people of God, the temple of God is growing. And we are being built together into a temple. And it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We have here the, the record of the apostles and prophets. The foundation has been laid. You can't change the foundation. We can't say, oh, we don't, don't like this bit. We don't like that bit. The church has the foundation that has already been made. You can't change the foundation. It's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Look at there, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, we don't really know what cornerstones are like today. I mean, this building, has it got a decent cornerstone? Has anyone ever seen the cornerstone here? No. Well, in the temple, it had a cornerstone. And this stone, well, the biggest stone they found in the temple to date is um, 45 feet Long. I should have measured this out earlier. Let me do it now, all right? 45 feet is 15 meters, right? So it starts here. This is one stone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, it's as big as the width of this chapel, all right? So it's 45 feet wide. It's 50, uh, 45 feet long. It's 15 feet wide, so let's start here. So, this is one stone, mind you, all right? Five meters. One, two, three, four, five. It's up to you, Dickie, all right? You're just outside. <laughs> okay, and then it's 11 feet high. So, I'm, well, I'm, what, five, nine? So, take three inches off me and double that. Oh, no, I should be down here, shouldn't I? So it's about to the, it's above the top of the TV screen there, isn't it? One stone, all right. Do you know how much this stone weighed? 570 tons. Now, if you go to Stonehenge, right, they've got big stones at Stonehenge, haven't they? The average weight of the stones in Stonehenge are, can I have a guess? Very good. 25 tons. The biggest stone, the heel stone, is 30 tons, which means that this one foundation stone of the temple is like 19 of the biggest stones at Stonehenge. Can you imagine them putting that in place? It's phenomenal, isn't it? We wonder how they built Stonehenge, but how they got these stones, and then stones on top of it like it. Massive and, and, and we don't understand really the purpose of the cornerstone, but we know that the temple in Jerusalem was built on the edge of the valley. It went down into the valley of Hinnon, which was the picture of hell. And that cornerstone stopped the whole temple slipping down into hell. 
And I, I like to think that the reason that we are safe, the reason why there's no condemnation for us, is because Jesus Christ is this chief cornerstone, and he keeps us safe. We would fail. We would fall. We would slip to destruction. But he holds us safe. But not only does he keep us from slipping, but he shows the height, the length, and the width of the dimensions of the temple. So it goes up based upon the shape of the cornerstone. It goes out based upon the dimensions of the cornerstone and along. And Jesus Christ is what determines its shape. This is why we're not only safe in Christ, but we're to be Christ-like because he's the chief cornerstone. And not only are we built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, but we are joined together. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. I remember Colin Lamb taking a wedding here of one of his family and he showed what the Jews would do at a wedding and he got a glass and he put it in a cloth and then he hit the glass and it shattered. It had been joined but now it was shattered and it couldn't be joined together again. Well, we're joined and let's not let anything shatter that unity. God lives in us. Let's make sure that as we praise God and trust God and pray to God and worship God, so we draw near to God and he comes near to us. And so that people will come in and say, surely God is amongst you. Let's know the intensity of his presence with us. This is who we are. The young Victoria, on that day, she realized how close she was to the throne of England. Well, I hope that this day, we realize how close we are to the God of heaven. That we once were far away, doubly dead. But now in Christ Jesus, we're doubly alive, with, united with each other and united with him. Indeed, we are citizens. We're family. We're part of the holy of holies in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us that we haven't behaved as citizens, as family, as living stones in the temple as we should. We thank you that Jesus Christ forgives us for our sins. And we pray for that cleansing, for that washing, that renewing of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would forgive us that for so long we haven't really understood the full privilege. Indeed, we forget the privileges of once being doubly dead and now being doubly alive. But we thank you and pray that from this moment on our lives might be different. That we might live as citizens of heaven, bringing the lifestyle of heaven to our, our lives on earth. That we shall live as the family of God, loving each other, caring for each other, committed to each other. And that we might be uh, as bricks built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With all our dimensions directed by Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. And joined together in him to live for your glory and honor. 
We pray that our individual lives, our marriages, our families, and our church would bring praise and honor to Jesus Christ, who has loved us and saved us, and that we are alive today and we have glory to look forward to. And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.